electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good Thursday. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan tonight. It's lights out for Hollywood actors. Join writers on strike. Will it break the entertainment industry? The Lost Ark. Kathy Wood misses out on Coinbase's best day ever on the heels of a major court ruling. Elon Musk's SpaceX hits the stratosphere in a new valuation. We have the breaking developments. Plus, the FTC takes on its next target, ChatGPT and cleared for takeoff. We'll look at the first fully electric flying car preparing to hit the skies. That and much more. Last Call is up right now. Good evening from CNBC's global headquarters. We begin tonight with a potential game changer for one of America's legacy companies. Could some of Disney's crown jewels soon be up for sale? Disney CEO Bob Iger making headlines today saying the company's legacy TV networks, including ABC and FX, may not be core to Disney. Here's what he said to our David Faber. There's clearly creativity and content that they create that is core to Disney, but the distribution model, the business model that forms the underpinning of that business and that has delivered great profits over the years is definitely broken. And we have to, we, and, and we have to call it like it is. Now, Iger stopped short of including ESPN on that list. The Disney CEO says the company wants to stay in the sports business, but he's open to finding a strategic partner. There is an inevitability, by the way, you raised it, to taking ESPN and the direct-to-consumer. Yep. We haven't said when, but we do know that it will happen. Is it sooner than you had thought, let's even say seven months ago? No, I think I'm much more certain about when, but not prepared to say when that is. Uh, I won't say whether it's sooner or not, but I'm, I'm enthusiastic about it. So who are the likely buyers and strategic partners? And the big question, can Bob Iger fix the Magic Kingdom? Let's talk about it with Yale School of Management Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies, Jeff Sonnenfeld, co-founder and CEO of RSE Ventures, Matt Higgins. Thank you both for joining Last Call. Now, Matt, you focus on sports and entertainment investments, and you also teach direct-to-consumer at Harvard Business School. Is there anything... Matt, about what we're looking at, at, where Disney's concerned, that you would find appealing in terms of jumping in and trying to buy some of these assets? Yeah, if my name was Apple, uh, Amazon, or Google, I I think today was a a great, and Bob, we trust, right? I mean, he's a master at at the art of the deal. He basically kicked off, in my opinion, an auction today, and it makes a ton of sense. What he's saying is, 
ESPN is eventually going to lose this uh, arms race on buying sports uh, sports rights. They don't have enough money. It's going to ble- bleed them dry eventually. He needs to partner with somebody who's leaning in, all in on direct to consumer, and it couldn't be a better time. You've got you know Amazon doing Thursday night's NFL package. You've got uh, Google with a Sunday ticket. You've got Apple doing the uh, Major League Soccer deal. So I think there's going to be a number of bidders who are going to want to go after uh, ESPN and partner up, and he gets to ride along, take in some cash by selling some equity and make ESPN ultimately way more valuable. All right, Jeff, let's talk a little bit about why this makes sense for Disney. You're seeing $5.5 billion in cost-cutting measures, $3 billion of that in content cuts. Why do you think it makes sense for Disney to look at breaking up this behemoth? Uh, I think, uh, as uh, Tom Rogers has said in an earlier show on CNBC, is uh, to to solve a problem, you have to recognize that you have one. And what was remarkable about the, the David Faber interview is that he recognized some of the issues with the legacy business. I mean, obviously, he talked about the, the importance of sports going ahead and how he could fix the creative businesses, which he knows how to do very well and 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 what he wants to do, I guess, on other fronts on Disney Plus with streaming. But... He talked about candidly in a relaxed way. You felt like you're having a conversation with a friend backstage. There's such confidence that he exuded that he knows he has to deal with this and that there are players out there. I agree with everything Matt said. Apple, Amazon, uh, Google. But you could also throw into the equation Verizon just because AT&T didn't quite make things work. We know that Comcast as a pipeline company certainly knew how to manage content when they took over NBC. And that's a great model for certainly what Verizon could also be added to Matt's list. You know, there's a lot of companies that have the money that could jump in and do this. What we saw, for instance, with GE, I, I worked for NBC News when GE was our corporate boss. And then you started to see GE going through this reinvention where it decided to really narrow its scope of focus. Where do you see a model of success, Jeffrey, in doing that? And where are there examples that Disney should avoid repeating? Well, it's, you don't want somebody who's going to jump in there uh, for personal ego and grandiosity. What is a danger, I think, that a lot of people were afraid of is they think of the show business move, you know, world and they remember the eras of Adolf Zucker or Lou Wasserman or uh, Rupert Murdoch, who, of course, uh, has run Fox for as long as Bob Iger has been on the planet. Uh, in, in fact, a year longer than Bob's been alive. Murdoch's been running it. And we have these legacy of Bill Paley of CBS and NBC, Sarnoff, uh, Leonard Goldson, who uh, created ABC, is that you don't want somebody who's going to constantly change the Gold Coast goalposts and invent a reason to stay there that he i think it takes about three years for these turnarounds to happen two years was too ambitious there's a kind of person called the general that comes back in the second world war is the triumph of great generals who came out of retirement and that's what we see with steve jobs that we saw with howard schultz at starbucks and we saw are, with Michael are there Donald. are there names that you think should, jeffrey should be up for consideration for succession planning well, I think what's remarkable is uh, he showed his hand there in terms of transparency. Look at the delegation he brought with him off to Sun Valley right now. That was a pretty bold move but to have uh, Dana Walden, who was a, a Fox uh, uh, legacy, who was uh, in charge of entertainment. She shares it with, with Alan Bergman, actually, as co-chair uh, in, in running studios. Now, she hasn't run the film side before. This gives him an opportunity to groom her more on the creative side, and she hasn't spent a lot of time in parks. We have uh, uh, you know, Josh DeMauro, who's run parks, 
and he hasn't spent a lot of time on the creative side. So the opportunity for cross-pollination is something we hope to see in the next couple of years, see what they do. And and uh, there are other possibilities, too, with, with Bergman. And it was also kind of nice that he brought Bergman there, as well as Christine McCarthy, the, the CFO who's going to be leaving. There's a, there's a good bench strength here. And, yeah, mm-hmm. there are people on the outside. There, you know, there's always, there's always Jeff Zucker and others on the outside. They're all dressed up, ready to serve. Matt, I'm interested, when you're looking at him saying that FX and ABC may not be core to the business and sort of setting aside ESPN. Talk to me a little bit about how you see linear television now versus streaming and why ESPN may be a special case for Disney. Well, that was one of the more entertaining parts of the interview. He didn't hold anything back. He put it in the no growth category. I mean, he didn't exactly shop his book in in that interview because the reality is it is in trouble. It's hard to see how you can go ahead and, and change that business model when all the cord cutters have already uh, voted. He also made it very clear in the I told you so that I predicted this, which everybody else did, and also predicted the the, the trouble that ESPN would be under. ESPN is fundamentally different because there are a lot of buyers who it makes it a lot more attractive to. And the, the quality of a buyer or, or strategic partner, I should say, with ESPN is someone who in which content is not the main event, but is an ancillary product that helps them drive their main core business. So if you just look at Amazon, stating the obvious, they're using content to go ahead and create a stickier relationship with Amazon Prime. There are other examples. So I think he's being really smart by saying, we don't need to dispose of this asset. It's at in our hands alone. It is a dying asset. But when I partner with somebody else, I can create a ton of value. By the way, my sources are telling me that this whole thing of strategic partners, it's just that the expectation for what ESPN or Disney would get out of it in terms of monetary value was way too high. And up and down the sports betting side, the conversations have been there. The potential for deals has been there, but the 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 metrics just have not been right for the sports betting companies, even those that can access the finances to pull off a deal like that. So we'll have to see how that plays out. In the meantime, last word, uh, Jeff, Matt, do you think that there's anybody, if Disney doesn't want ABC, if they don't want FX, why would anybody else? Matt, what do you think? Uh, that's a great question. I think it feels more like a private equity play where somebody's buying up those old newspapers, trying to squeeze mm-hmm. everything out of it to make cash flowing business. I, I don't know who the buyer is other than private equity. Jeffrey? I just think that Comcast, and, and not to be pandering, but Comcast's uh, ability to integrate and, and leverage value out of all the NBC network products is the perfect model to follow. Work for Comcast, it could certainly work for a buyer uh, of, of the fabulous ABC culture. And by the way, the ABC news culture is almost as good as NBC's. It's fantastic. There's a sm- tremendous enthusiasm there. Top talent. When people when people leave, they go to the very top places. They're, they're, and, and so I think that's a tremendously valuable asset. It's a great well, name. And all their shows are doing well. 2020 World News Tonight uh, is doing extremely well. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, Matt Higgins, thank you very much. Comcast is, of course, the parent of CNBC. And if you didn't get a chance to catch David Faber's full interview with Bob Iger, stick around after last call. The full exclusive interview will re-air right after last call starting at 8 p.m., Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. Here's what happened to your money today. The Dow up slightly. There, you're seeing it up uh, 47 points. The S&P 500 rose about eight-tenths of a uh, percent, and the NASDAQ up one-and-a-half percent. The biggest winner of the day was EPAM Systems, jumping nearly 5 percent. And the biggest loser, Progressive, dropped sharply 13 percent after missing on earnings and pointed to higher expenses in paying out claims. The insurer's stock saw its worst day since 2008. Up next, 
Timing is everything. ARK's Kathy Wood really missed the boat with this stock trade. We'll explain. Plus, Elon Musk's SpaceX blasts its way to a jaw-dropping new valuation. There's breaking developments after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. for tomorrow's news tonight and tomorrow morning you can expect a lot of water cooler talk about crypto a judge's landmark ruling sent cryptocurrencies and crypto stocks rallying crypto company ripple has scored a big victory in its case against the sec with ripple's xrp token skyrocketing on the decision coinbase's stock also soared nearly 25 percent after the judge's decision cnbc's kate rooney joins us now with those details i guess they probably feel like they were due for some good news that's right, Contessa. Yeah, it has been a tough year for cryptocurrency, but this one really was a closely watched legal case for crypto. And the court's decision today, Contessa, could have big implications for the future of this industry. To set the stage a bit here, the cryptocurrency XRP was created more than a decade ago by a major company in the space called Ripple. The SEC sued Ripple almost three years ago now, alleging that it broke the law by selling that cryptocurrency without being cleared by the agency. They say the company had an obligation to register the same way you would if you sold a stock or a bond. Today, a U.S. district judge ruled that, yes, sales of the cryptocurrency to more sophisticated investors, like hedge funds, for example, was illegal. They call that an unregistered offering. But this is key here. Sales to regular investors on an exchange did not violate the law, and that has been at the core of the SEC's recent lawsuit against Coinbase. SEC Chair Gary Gensler has argued that most crypto tokens, aside from Bitcoin, are securities, so like stocks or bonds. That's because the SEC argues that buyers have the expectation of profit. That's based on a 77-year-old Supreme Court case. It's now known as the Howey Test. The agency used that reasoning in suing Coinbase and Binance, arguing that they broke the law by listing certain tokens. So both are fighting in court, and they argue that the SEC is overreaching here. So if others and other courts follow in the wake of today's decision declaring that cryptocurrencies are not securities, it could undercut the SEC's case. And that's what Coinbase's chief legal officer is hoping. That's a, a major ruling for all of us. It's certainly something we're going to be pointing to um, in our case. Um, and it's something I think that a lot of courts are going to be reviewing because Judge Torres, the judge in the XRP case, did a very thorough analysis, was extremely careful in her reasoning. I think it's going to be persuasive law 
um, in, in a lot of cases uh, across the country. And Contessa, after taking that cryptocurrency in question off of their platform, Coinbase this afternoon saying it's now relisting XRP. So people will be able to trade it again on Coinbase. All of this optimism really showing in prices today. Coinbase was ripping higher today before the close. You can see the same thing going on there with XRP. Contessa, back to you. That's really remarkable. But it looks like with all of those stock moves, somebody who really missed out was ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood. What happened? You might call this seller's remorse, Contessa. I don't know. Kathy Wood, though, is a notable crypto bull. Her fund, ARK Invest, has been one of Coinbase's largest shareholders, still is. And so for the first time in about a year, her flagship fund sold Coinbase on a week it was absolutely ripping. So likely what they call profit-taking. The stock has been up about 150% so far this year. So you've got to take a little bit of profit here and take some off the table. Sold about $12 million worth. She missed a double-digit gain this week. But important to note and put it in a little bit of perspective, she still owns about $900 million worth of that stock. So she's still doing okay. All right. That's good to hear. (laughs) Kate Rooney, thank you. Speaking (laughs) of Kathy Wood, you want to tune in tomorrow for a special edition of Tech Check at 6 p.m. Eastern. Before last call, Kathy Wood, ARK Invest founder and CEO, will join the show. And perhaps we'll get more thoughts on the selling of Coinbase right before it takes off like it did. All right, the value of Elon Musk's SpaceX out of this world. The company hit a nearly $150 billion valuation following a share sale by existing investors. That's according to documents obtained by CNBC. And CNBC's space reporter, Michael Sheets, broke that story. Michael, what's driving SpaceX's valuation even higher? Well, it's all really about a trifecta of the company's different programs. Their Falcon series of rockets is launching at a blistering pace. They're already at 47 launches this year, launching on average, sending satellites and astronauts up in space on average of every four days. Then you have their Starlink business, over 1.5 million subscribers, a business that they're actually going to expect to start making money on less than three years after they started rolling out the service. And then finally, there's their Starship rocket, which has this huge potential. It's a bigger monster rocket than we've ever seen before in the space industry. And once it's successful, it really would kind of promise to change a lot of the way the industry thinks about sending things into space. So that threefold effect is what's really driving so much of this valuation. All right. So this new share price represents an increase of about 5% from its previous secondary sale. Why do you think that there's so much enthusiasm on the part of investors? I think it's because of two things. One, this kind of idea of like not betting against Elon Musk that we've heard so much in the past when it comes to Tesla. And then two, SpaceX's track record. They've been able to do things just with their existing programs that have never been done before in their space in the space industry's history. Most notably, you know, being able to fly NASA astronauts to and from the International Space Station safely as a private company, but then secondarily flying and landing rockets regularly. So they've already had this kind of demonstrated foundation of doing the the impossible within the space industry. And now they're really continuing to push that forward. So that's that's the excitement that investors see moving forward. Michael, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Be sure to check out more of Michael's reporting on CNBC.com. Still ahead, the FTC has set its sights on big tech. And now it's locked in on a new target, chat GPT. Stay with us. At 
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back. Artificial intelligence is grabbing the spotlight this week. With shares of big AI names like Alphabet, NVIDIA, and Meta all rising today following fresh developments, Google's parent, Alphabet, announced it's expanding its Bard AI chat service to more countries. NVIDIA hit an all-time high after putting $50 million into the biotech company, Recursion. The investment aims to help drive AI-based drug discovery. And fun fact, NVIDIA's gain today was the equivalent of General Motors' entire market cap. And Meta also seeing a jump on news that it's releasing a commercial version of its AI model. But it's not all upside for AI. The Federal Trade Commission is opening an investigation into ChatGPT and its parent, OpenAI. It's looking at whether the platform spreads false information about real people. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman said the investigation is, quote, disappointing, but he says the company will work with the FTC. Joining me now is California Congressman Ro Khanna. Uh, Congressman, great to have you here tonight. Capitol Hill had a classified hearing about AI. Is it your sense, first and foremost, that lawmakers are ready and willing to grapple with the disruptive potential of AI? Contessa, we certainly have a knowledge gap. Uh, What we need to do is get experts, technologists in my district in Silicon Valley, academics, civil society, to have a commission that recommends certain principles. I mean, AI is going to have transformative impact, personalizing medicine, personalizing education, helping with supply chains, automating them to bring manufacturing home. But it also has huge risks, and we need to regulate those risks. But I don't think yet Congress is uh, there in terms of the knowledge base. Uh, The FTC Commissioner Lena Khan told the House Judiciary Committee today that she's concerned because when you go on, there have been examples that uh, people go on and request information from these AI bots. And what is produced is real information, identifying information about human beings that's just false. Is that a concern for you? And do you think that this falls under the FTC's purview? It is one concern. I don't think it's the paramount concern. I mean, the paramount concern are, are we going to know whether we're speaking to someone human or speaking to an AI bot? Are we going to be able to uh, confirm that something is authentic communication? Uh, Or is AI going to become complex enough to have machinery do things that are dangerous without safety? And I respect, of course, uh, Lena Khan, but I don't think the FTC should be making AI policy for the United States of America. The president of the United States and the Congress should be uh, with the uh, input of a lot of stakeholders. And it, it would be a shame if we just have ad hoc agency suits to make policy. Elon Musk last night held a Twitter Spaces event on artificial intelligence, and I know that you joined in the conversation as well. Let me play part of what he said about this need to regulate artificial intelligence. I am an advocate of having some sort of regulatory oversight. We want to 
be careful in how the air regulation is implemented and not be precipitous and heavy-handed. But I think it is something that needs – there's got to be some kind of referee on the field here. Congressman, he went on to suggest that perhaps maybe the industry could just self-regulate for a little while until Congress comes up to speed. Do you think that's a good idea? No, I think we need a regulatory body like we have the FDA, like we have the FAA. And if uh, folks tune in to the Twitter space with Mike Gallagher, myself and Elon Musk, uh, Elon actually is open to, to that idea. Uh, the FDA has made the American pharmaceuticals the best in the world because of standards. And I think we should do the same thing for AI. But to get there, we need people who really understand this, helping come up with the principles. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman had said to Congress that he thinks that you have to have a combination approach to avoid the worst potential of artificial intelligence. He says regulation, education, and companies doing the right thing. Are you confident that American companies can do the right thing and that they won't be out outperformed, outcompeted by bad actors doing the wrong thing? Well, I think that we need standards and regulation to ensure that, just like we need them for pharmaceuticals. Do I think pharmaceutical companies, uh, when they're making drugs, are out there to help uh, the American public? By and large, yes. But I still want there to be safety checks uh, for the FDA. The same with AI. I mean, many of these people may be well-intentioned, but if they are, have blind spots into having junk data go into their programs sure. and then having junk outcomes or blind spots in terms of discrimination of algorithms or safety checks, uh, then that's a real problem. So I don't think we can just leave this to the hands of Silicon Valley technologists. Elon Musk also suggested that China might be a willing partner in coming to the table and setting global frameworks for AI. What do you make of that? I'm skeptical of the Chinese government, given the surveillance that they have used on their own citizens, given some of the spy incidents, given the increased tensions in Taiwan that we need to be careful on. But I think the point that we have to try to engage on global treaties, global frameworks for AI regulation is true, just like we had to do that for nuclear technology. I mean, this is a technology that can be very dangerous if used in inappropriate ways. And that has to be a, a global solution. So I think we should be clear-eyed when dealing with the Chinese Communist Party, but we should uh, make some effort. Representative Ro Khanna, I appreciate your time tonight, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Contessa. Still ahead, fade to black. Hollywood actors join the writers on strike. Does the entertainment industry have any hope for, shall we call it a happy ending? Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. This is a complete Hollywood shutdown. The Screen Actors Guild voted unanimously to strike after failing to reach an agreement with movie producers, joining the ongoing writer strike that's kept more than 11,000 writers out of work since May. CNBC's Julia Borston joins us now with more. Julia, when will we see them actually out on a picket line? Well, Contessa, the picketing is set to start tomorrow. That comes after the leaders of 
TV and Movie Actors Guild SAG-AFTRA, representing 150,000 TV and movie actors, voted to strike today, the first time actors and writers have both been on strike since 1960. Now, SAG-AFTRA members share common concerns with the Writers Guild. Actors are demanding increases to their minimum pay rates, higher residuals from streaming, improved working conditions, and protections and compensation around artificial intelligence. An emotional Fran Drescher, president of SAG-AFTRA, spoke at a press conference today. Take a listen. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. And big business, who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? The Alliance of Studios responding that it, quote, presented a deal that offered historic pay and residual increases, substantially higher caps on pension and health contributions, audition protections, shortened series option periods, and a groundbreaking AI proposal that protects actors' digital likenesses for SAG-AFTRA members. Now, I'm here in Sun Valley with all of the major media CEOs whose studios are part of that alliance, the AMPTP. And today, Disney CEO Bob Iger raised a warning flag about the timing of the strike in an interview with our David Faber. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. So they're not being realistic? No, they're not. The question now is how the studios respond to this double strike. The WGA representing the writers writing that they stand behind SAG-AFTRA and that, quote, the last time that both of our unions struck at the same time, actors and writers won landmark provisions that we all continue to benefit from today. So the longer the strike lasts, the more it impacts what content can be produced for the fall TV season and how much the streamers and the networks will be relying on reality TV and sports rather than scripted shows at a time when those media companies are looking to cut costs. Contessa? When Bob Iger says this is the worst time to be doing this, does he mean that the ad environment is not good, that the the concerns over recession are there? What, What does he mean by that? I think he means all of the above. I mean, this is a time when the media industry is facing so many pressures in terms of a contracting ad market, but also the fragmentation of the viewing landscape. Right now, consumers have more options than ever, not just in terms of what channel to watch, but what streamer to select, and also whether they want to spend their time playing video games or watching user-generated content on the likes of YouTube or even TikTok. So the options are out there, and the question is whether this strike could drive more cord cutting um, or people to drop their subscription services if they're not getting the new shows they were waiting for on their favorite streamer. Maybe they'll say, hey, maybe I don't need to subscribe if I'm not getting my show back this Mm. fall. So I think there's a risk to the industry, but then also risk to actors who don't want to be replaced by AI. So, Julia, stay with me as I continue the conversation with former acting U.S. Secretary of Labor and member of President Obama's cabinet, Seth Harris. It's good to see you today, sir. 
give me a sense of what you think is fueling all the activism that we're seeing among the workers, because it's not just the writers and the actors strike. You've got Teamsters threatening to strike against the UPS. You've got UAW about to begin its uh, union negotiations um, with the big three automakers here. What is fueling the discontent among these union employees? Contessa, in a word, it's anger. Uh, workers are angry about how they were treated during the pandemic and that they put themselves at risk in order to help make profits for their employers and their employers didn't look out for them. Um, they're angry about profits. Uh, these companies made obscenely huge profits during the pandemic and many of them continued to make massive profits. Uh, and they have not shared those profits with their workers, the people who create those profits. And they are very enthusiastic about the labor movement. Uh, the union movement has never been more popular in the United States, particularly among young workers. And they have an economic environment where there are very tight labor markets and workers, therefore, have a great deal of power. And they have a political environment where they have a president who is an enthusiastic supporter of the labor movement. So workers now are ready to get theirs. And let me say that speech that you heard Fran Drescher giving, you could have heard that speech at any Teamsters Union Hall, UAW Union Hall. They all are singing from the same hymnal, and that is that they want to be protected, they want to be paid fairly, they want good quality jobs. But what you're saying is that wage disparity may factor as much into this as, say, what Julie was bringing up about concerns of being replaced by AI. Well, I think it's exactly what Julia was talking about. I think Julia did a great job in that setup piece. Um, these workers, actors, writers, uh, the folks at uh, the big three auto companies, the folks at uh, the UPS, they want a fair share of the profits that those companies are bringing in. And they want that in the form of wages. They want that in the form of good quality pension benefits and health care. In the case of the actors, they want residuals. The writers want the same thing. But they also are looking down the line at these technologies that are threatening their jobs. They're really worried about AI, just like an earlier generation of workers was very worried about robotics. And they were right to be worried about it because it displaced a bunch of workers. So they want to, it's not just income inequality, that's driving a lot of the uh, what's happening with the working class in America. But they want their fair share from their companies, they don't think these profits should only be going into buyer's pocket or shareholders' pockets. Julia, you said the Studio Alliance went back to the unions and addressed a lot of their concerns. So, so where's the gap? Well, I think, look, it's a negotiation. And I think the studio feels like they've made concessions and they're willing to compromise, but they're also dealing with a changing business. And ultimately, what's happened since the last time there was a negotiation is we've seen the rise of streaming. The television business as we know it has fundamentally changed. You're not seeing um, you know, TV shows go into syndication. You're not seeing viewing on TV in the same in the same numbers and the same levels. It's impacted the studios. And as their business model has shifted over to streaming, actors and writers want to be compensated in a new way. The question is just finding that middle ground. And right now, as we've seen with both of these guilds on strike, they haven't been able to come close enough just yet. I think it'll be interesting to see how having the two guilds negotiating perhaps together 
could help them as they try to get this resolved. And I think also we have to remember, Contessa, that the media companies, as they face these systemic pressures and these overall um, challenges, whether it comes to advertising um, or, or consumers maybe cutting back on the number of services that sure. they're subscribing to, they're looking to cut costs. And for them, if they're going to cut some costs right now, maybe it's okay to, to pull a couple of shows as they wait to find a, a solution that's going to work for them over the long term. They don't want to commit to giving up more than they can afford to because um, these contracts last for quite a while. Seth Harris, thank you for joining us today. Julia, great reporting, great interviews out there in Sun Valley today. Thank you for that. Coming up, bracing for tomorrow's bank earnings blitz, the key signals every investor should watch for in a moment. Here's our last call watch list. First, Carvana shares making a U-turn after yesterday's big gain. J.P. Morgan has downgraded the stock to underweight from neutral. Carvana is up nearly 700 percent this year. And J.P. Morgan says shares have become disconnected materially from fundamentals. It warns Carvana could fall by more than 70 percent. And Amazon, its massive two-day prime sales event is over, and Amazon says it's biggest ever. More than 375 million items sold worldwide, up from 300 million last year. And according to Adobe Analytics, U.S. online sales spiked more than 6 percent to the tune of $12.7 billion dollars. Amazon shares climbed more than 2% today. And we have a bonus tomorrow's news tonight because earnings. Banks kick off an earnings season blitz in the morning. J.P. Morgan, Citi, and Wells Fargo all report before the bell. New York Post business reporter Lydia Moynihan joins us now. Lydia, good to have you. We've seen low volatility. We've seen few deals and fewer IPOs from the capital market side. What are we going to learn tomorrow? Well, in life, as on Wall Street, the key is really having low expectations. So, yeah, you make a great point. We haven't seen a lot of change over the last few quarters. As Mike Mayo, a Wells Fargo analyst, has said, all of these banks are facing similar difficulties in the macro environment. The three R's, uh, recession fears, rates, uh, which have gone higher, of course, investors looking for other maybe more profitable um, opportunities, and then the regulatory environment as well, which continues to sort of be a burden to some of these banks. So that's something that all of these banks are facing. So you have to look at what are these banks signaling to investors to expect. And we're seeing particularly the smaller banks trying to get ahead of what one can only guess will be sort of bad news. Key Corp, Zion's all signaling that it's gonna, it's been a difficult quarter. Of course, these smaller banks are still facing many of the same conditions that led to SVB's failure earlier this year. So not a lot of optimism on that front. That comes as there's a lot of chatter about uh, consolidation among smaller and regional banks. And then some optimism that uh, Morgan Stanley is not going to see as much of a profits decline as maybe they did last quarter. But Goldman Sachs, in particular, one of the larger banks, which we'll see report next week, uh, they're signaling to investors that it's going to be a very rocky quarter. They're going to be writing down Green Sky, which was an acquisition they made for $2 billion. Um, and they're also signaling that their trading profits have not been very successful this last quarter. In the meantime, it, it seems to me that Wall Street has been extremely outspoken and aggressive in trying to get their teams back into the office. Do you think we're going to hear more commentary on that front? You know, these CEOs love to opine on that. I think to an extent, Wall Street is one of the only sectors to really have won that sort of war with getting back to the office. Uh, 
Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, JP Morgan, they've all been very vocal that they think people should be in five days a week. So I think especially these top banks where it is so competitive to get a job, people are willing to do whatever it takes. The problem is, uh, at least when it comes to banking, that a lot of these people have been in the office and maybe they don't have much to do, right? So that's been a huge issue. And I think that's what investors want to see, that these people actually have work. And I, I do want to note, um, there are some signs of optimism on that front with deal making, with IPOs, the Kava IPO, which happened a few weeks ago, that was seen as a yeah. real sign of optimism um, that one company wanted to go public, Liquid and Death, another water company, uh, filed to go public earlier this week. So hopefully uh, those workers will be back in the office and will be have have plenty of work to do while they're there. They, a lot of people who want to see this IPO freeze thawing finally. Lydia, thank you. And speaking of heavy hitters on Wall Street, BlackRock is also reporting earnings in the morning, and CEO Larry Fink will join Squawk on the Street. That's at 9 a.m. Eastern for a first on CNBC interview. You don't want to miss that. Time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker, all the news that mattered in the world of business, and one bold sea otter. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. ExxonMobil making a big bet on carbon capture, acquiring pipeline operator Denbury for almost $5 billion. CEO Darren Wood sat down with Becky Quick. The deal that we're doing today with Denbury has very solid returns. The Saturday's Powerball jackpot is now $875 million, third highest ever. Your odds of winning? One in $292 million. Good luck. Hungry? McDonald's is giving away free fries until midnight tonight at participating restaurants. First, you got to download the app. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard steps down to become Dean of Purdue University's Business School. Forget Jaws, a sea otter in California harassing surfers, stealing their boards. Fish and Wildlife says the behavior's concerning and unusual. You don't say. We call this one Brewer's Bad News. San Fran-based Anchor Brewing is shutting down due to rising costs and slower beer sales. After 127 years, the oldest craft brewer in the nation. The average AI job pays 146,000 bucks a year. Wait, I'm out of time? You know, sometimes that happens. The trick with AI jobs, you got to hang on to them before they take over your job. Coming up, straight out of the Jetsons, the FAA giving the green light to, are you ready for this? Flying cars. I always dreamed that one day I'd be in the news anchor chair and I'd be able to announce a flying car. Would you get in one? We're talking to the CEO of the company behind this emerging technology next. The future is now. The FAA has granted California-based Olive Aeronautics a special certification to test flying cars. These are flying cars that can also be driven on roads. And the FAA is currently working on policies for the vehicles, but Olive is taking deposits for pre-orders on one of its models. Joining me now, co-founder and CEO of Olive Aeronautics, Jim Duchovny. Jim, good to see you. Thanks for hosting us. Okay, where does it stand right now? Do these cars actually right now go from the road to the air? That's correct. You can drive on the road and then vertically take off and fly forward. That being said, they are, as you correctly pointed out, in a test environment. So we're still working with, through the uh, with jurisdictions okay. to get it actually to you guys, but it may take some time. What does the FAA certification mean that you can now do? 
Yeah, so it's a limited certification which allows us to fly in the very specific areas and only very specific purposes. But it's also very important because, yes, it allows us actually legally to fly. Uh, and as you can mention, uh, the car is actually droppable, so you can drive it. Okay, so for the testing purposes, you're not actually going to be out driving this car on the highways that I'm driving on, will you? Not yet. Uh, that's a plan, but not yet. Yes, uh, you should not be able to see it not, neither today nor tomorrow, neither in San Francisco where we are, nor Los Angeles, New York, or anywhere else. How will these cars... we're working to get it there. Okay, how do the cars work? Like, is this meant that I can fly from New York City to Boston and, and just go along the roadways, or is it something more limited and constrained? Correct. So as of right now, the maximum uh, maximum length is projected to be 110 miles. So this is meant to be a commute car. This is meant to enhance and replace your commute car, which you usually uh, use to go to work, your Honda, your Toyota, your Tesla, or anything else. Um, in the future, yes, we plan to make it longer range. But as of right now, this is your reg should be regular commute vehicle, which should hopefully make your commute much, much faster and much more enjoyable. Uh, and when are you going to actually deliver on the pre-orders that you already have? That's a good question. So we're trying to work against the jurisdictions that mainly, um, mainly depends on FA and jurisdictions outside the United States with which we're working on. Um, technically, we should be ready pretty soon. Usually I communicate 2025. But again, it's highly depending on jurisdictions and the legal, how they allow us to work. Okay, okay, what we're showing is the conception of the flying car. Will the cars actually, we're showing them flying like by the bridge. Will they fly that high or is this the kind of case where you're driving on the road, you maybe go 20 feet in the air? Right, so in testing, again, since receiving a FAA certification, uh, we flew, as you can see, like in a low altitudes, we can fly in a high altitudes also. It all depends on your particular use case. Whatever you need to drive most of the way and you need to fly over some particular area yeah. or you want to fly most of the way, in which case you want Jim, to fly. Jim, I'm fascinated. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for hosting us. Do you know what happened 93 years ago tonight? The biggest sporting event on the planet kicked off the first World Cup held in Uruguay. 13 teams from around the world in the tournament, including the United States. But it was the host nation that came out on top. 93,000 people saw Uruguay beat Argentina in the final. Up next, David Faber's interview with Bob Iger. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 